Our Father, as we think of the men and women who have lived down through the thousands of years that precede us, the individuals whose lives are recorded in Scripture, and of course, vast numbers who are not, we're just really grateful to be a part of the body of Christ and to be members of the kingdom of God, joint heirs with these individuals who have lived for you. And Father, we have to constantly remind ourselves, it seems, as we get caught up in the triteness of the world in which we live, that we are a part of that great kingdom of God. And that these people who have lived are those who are part of the army that you have raised up to dwell in your kingdom and who have given their lives as a testimony to the reality of God. Lord, I pray that we in turn, as we study the word, will be made strong in faith and active in our representation of faith to the world around us. Lord, bless again as we study the life of Joseph and grant to us the insight we need. In Christ's name, amen. I thought as we're approaching this particular passage of Scripture, we began the 41st chapter of Genesis last time, that in order for us to really maybe get a little bit better insight on what is represented by the dream of Pharaoh, that I would uh, give you this little handout. Now, I, it just came as a bright idea last night, so I sat down at about 9 o'clock at night and, and banged this thing out. So I hope it all came out reasonably understandable. I'd like to just go over it quickly. I know you all are able to read, but uh, sometimes we don't read everything that's put in front of us, and sometimes that's good. But hopefully uh, here, that is, these are worthwhile things to read. What I did was try to summarize here a little bit of uh, what uh, the ancient Egyptian religion was like. There's no way. <laughs> I mean, I've got books on it at home. So uh, you, you can't obviously summarize on a single sheet of paper all the details. But this, this gives us a little concept here. The ancient Egyptians were a polytheistic, pantheistic people from the earliest records in the fourth millennium BC. Egypt began to join the, the ranks of recorded history in the fourth millennium. Ancient Egypt is dated from about 3800 BC or so, give or take a few hundred years, until Christianity became influential in the third century AD. This is, of course, in Egypt itself. The last vestiges of the ancient religion did not die out until sometime after the Muslim conquest of Egypt in the 7th century AD. And that's not because Islam was so much more desirable. It's simply because Islam, as you know, does not tolerate competition, and particularly paganism. As Muhammad's forces rode forth, they would uh, tolerate what they called the people of the book. Uh, that is, others who adhered to the Old Testament, such as Christians and Jews. But pagans, they had no time for. And basically, one of the reasons that Islam spread so rapidly was you had two choices. You either bowed the knee to Allah or they cut your head off. So, you know, most people, it didn't take them long to make the choice. 
The pantheon and pantheistic worldview of both Egypt and Mesopotamia impacted most of the peoples of the ancient Near East and created a hostile spiritual environment for the descendants of Abraham who were faithful to Yahweh. Later, Christianity was faced with a similar polytheistic pantheistic milieu because the Greeks, the Etruscans, and the Phoenicians had absorbed much of the pagan theology of both Egyptian and Mesopotamian cultures. Now, the Greeks, as we know, were so influential on the Romans that the culture even became known as the Greco-Roman culture. But early Rome was also heavily impacted by the Etruscans, who were people who lived north of Rome, who are thought to have migrated from, at one time, from over in Asia Minor, where they too were influenced by particularly Mesopotamian culture and religion. And then the Phoenicians, of course, had established themselves all along the coast of the Western Mediterranean, particularly at Carthage. And they were rivals of Rome, and uh, their uh, gods also had some impact on Rome, although much less than that of the Etruscans and the Greeks. They in turn passed the ancient uh, cos uh, cosmogony and theogony onto the Romans who ruled the Mediterranean world during the first centuries of the existence of Christ. That is, the, their theory of origins, of how life came about and where it was going, and then their story of the descent of the gods. Theogony is the descent of the gods, the evolution of the gods. Some of the ancient Egyptian gods were worshipped outside of Egypt itself. For example, temples to Isis were built on the Greek island of Delos, and in southern Italy, where Isis was called Stella Maris, or Star of the Sea. And there's some very strong linkage of this concept on beyond that to what happened in Rome later on as um, Mary was so often portrayed with the infant Jesus on her lap just as Isis was portrayed throughout ancient history in Egypt with Horus on her lap. So it seems like there are some connections there, not in terms of God's direction, but the way humans have done things. Egyptian religion began with at least one tutelary god, that is a guardian god, for each city-state or gnome as they were called in Egypt. As Egypt was unified, the gnomes became provinces of the Egyptian kingdom. Certain, uh, I, I read that wrong, but anyway, certain gods and goddesses became more popular than others. Through the third and second millennium BC, the Egyptian theogony became so convoluted that many deities began to overlap in the genealogy and authority. In other words, well, I go on and explain that here, so I won't do that twice. For example, the chief sun god, Ray and the popular falcon-headed god, Horus, were often confused as the chief Egyptian god. And this is important because of Horus' role here in this, this whole thing that we're studying in the 41st chapter. Also, Isis and Hathor were both considered to be mother goddess, and both were symbolized by the cow. They're often shown as a woman with a, a crown on the head which is made up of the horns of a cow, and in between uh, is the solar disk. Both of them are shown this way. The ancient Egyptians recognized the confusion, and sometime in the second millennium BC, possibly around the time of Joseph, the priesthood at Heliopolis, that's the... Uh, a uh, religious city just north of what is currently uh, Cairo, attempted to bring some order to the Egyptian pantheon. The result was called the Heliopian, Heliopolitan, <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, Heliopolitan, <laughs> whatever, uh, Enid, or Nine, 
and the proposed hierarchy included. And, and I've tried to put together uh, here what's thought to be the, the descent of the gods as they, they tried to organize it here, with Ray as the sun god being on top. Who, and it's very common not only in, in Egypt but in other cultures for a single god to be able to have children. It doesn't, and he doesn't have to be a female either. You know, it can come out of the head or out of the arm or all kinds of weird things happen in, in mythology. Uh, the sun god Ray has two children. One is Shu and the other is Tefnet. Uh, they are brother and sister, but of course they become married, the god of the air and the uh, water goddess. And those two bring forth Geb and Nut. And Geb is the earth god, and Nut is the sky goddess. And so they are brother, sister, who become married also. Or The gods are very incestuous, as you probably know. And from them come then the gods that are important, at least in part, to this uh, story here. Uh, Osiris and Isis, uh, Seth and, and Nephthys are brothers and sisters, all from Geb and Nut and their various areas of authority are listed under there. And uh, Osiris is very important because he is sort of a imitation or attempt to diffuse the idea of resurrection because he is killed by his brother Seth. They war with each other and he's killed and chopped up and, and yet uh, he goes to the underworld but he comes back and every time in spring when the vegetation comes to life again, this is Osiris at work, see? Sort of a resurrection concept. And uh, Isis and Osiris together, this is actually after he's dead, she's impregnated and Horus uh, is the product. Now what's strange about this as you think about it is here's Horus way down the line and yet he is considered by many to be co-equal and, uh, uh, and often thought to be almost the same as Ray, the sun god at the top. And so as we look at this passage this morning, maybe this will help it to be not quite as, as fuzzy as it uh, otherwise might be. Now that you're totally confused. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> Egyptian mythology is extremely confusing. If you've ever read Greco-Roman uh, mythology and you read about all the gods and goddesses and, and that blows your mind, it, it, that's pretty orderly compared to Egyptian. And, and part of the reason for that is we don't have all the mythology written out in nice uh, uh, narrative form like we do for much of the Greeks, uh, gods of the Greeks and Romes, Romans. It has to be interpreted from what the Greeks have written down later on about what the Gre uh, G Egyptians actually believe and interpreted from the hieroglyphics which are pretty hard to read and aren't exactly written in flowing narrative. Genesis 41. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat. And they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke, then he, and, and, and he fell asleep, and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. 
Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. The end of class last week, we introduced this passage. Uh, I introduced this passage and, and spoke, uh, you know, some introductory thoughts about it. I think it's really important that we understand that this is a religious theme that we're uh, pursuing as we look at these dreams, uh, these two dreams, and we'll see that as we uh, go through here. One of the most important concepts to understand was that Pharaoh was believed to be the son of God, that God being Horus. So he is the son of Horus. And uh, that, that plays a major role here. You know, as, as I mentioned, uh, I think it was, you know, uh, God delights to do a lot of things. And I think sometimes God really delights to tweak those who think they are something when they are nothing. And to, to give to this son of God, as he was considered and considered himself to be, a dream that he couldn't even probe, although it's simple as can be, <laughs> I think was very, you know, I think God got delight from, from doing that. Pharaoh and his court were so steeped in this Egyptian religion and its mythology that the only way God could really penetrate even a little bit into their darkness was to create a situation for which the Egyptian gods, the priesthood, had no answer. Now, for God, that's not very difficult to do, of course. So God gives to Pharaoh a very simple yet enigmatic dream. In his dream, Pharaoh is standing by the river Nile, we're told. Now, to us, that's, we think, okay, the guy's standing by a river, so... That could be an easy picture. We can all portray that. But we have to understand, he is the son of Horus, standing on the banks, looking out over the River Nile, which in Egyptian mythology was the god Hapi. Hapi was the god of the Nile, who lived in the Nile. Uh, he is often portrayed in a human form. Uh, Hapi is a very, very important god because he's the god who provides the moisture that enables Egypt to survive. Without the Nile River, as Herodotus said in the 5th century BC, uh, Egypt is the gift of the Nile. Without the Nile River, there would be no Egypt. Uh, if it weren't for the Nile, Egypt would be just like the rest of the Sahara Desert, basically uninhabitable but they gave credit for this habitability to a god, this, this god Hapi, who represents the river and is represented by the river. Now, as we look at this scene, it's a very tranquil scene. It's a very comforting scene. You're standing there by the river. The river is flowing by in all of its fullness. The sun is shining. Uh, it's a very calm and peaceful day. Ascending the banks of the river were seven cows. And the scripture says that they were yafeth, fair and beautiful, and that they were fat. So what we're looking at here is seven blue ribbon prize-winning cows walking up out of the river onto the river bank. Everything that a farmer could hope for in a cow was represented by these seven. 
And these seven cows were contentedly standing, probably maybe even with their hooves in the water, feasting on the abundant marsh uh, grass growing along the edge of the river. The scene is very familiar, certainly to Pharaoh. It's a very satisfying scene, a very pastoral scene, but one that's shot through with religious connotations as far as Pharaoh is concerned. Because not only did the abundant waters of the Nile represent to him the beneficence of Hapi, the god who is blessing Egypt with, with moisture, but the symbolism of the cow. The cow was the symbol of Isis. And Isis was the mother goddess. Isis was the goddess who overlooked and oversaw and cared for with mother tenderness. Isis was the goddess who, who saw to it that the ground brought forth abundantly. She was married to her brother Osiris, who was the god of the renewal of vegetation. And so this is a really, uh, to him, a profound dream in the sense that it looks really like a wonderful scene to him. And he's satisfied not only physically but religiously as he views this particular scene. And then on top of that, Isis is the mother of Horus from whom Pharaoh himself is descended. What better picture could he get than this picture? But suddenly the whole tone of the dream changes. Pharaoh saw seven other cows ascending up out of the river. They were also walking up out of the river a bed uh, onto the banks but these were described as bad cows. <laughs> bad in the sense of poor quality, inferior creatures. They're, they're described as thin-fleshed. In other words, they're just skin and bones. You know, uh, cattle have been through a, through a tremendous drought or something would seem like what's being pictured here. And of course, is the ultimate meaning. Their appearance suddenly caused the whole scene to lose its calm, satisfying appearance. Suddenly, whoops, <laughs> these cows aren't so good. Uh, they're coming up out of the river. What, what can this mean? Certainly this began to cause uh, reverberations, if you will, within the mind of Pharaoh as he watched this take place. The dream was beginning to turn into a nightmare as seven emaciated cows came up to stand by the seven fat and good cows. What really shocked him was the fact that then these seven emaciated cows ate the seven fat cows. Now, obviously, this can only happen in a dream. And, and then when he looked, the seven emaciated cows were not even changed. After they had eaten these huge fat cows, they were still as skinny as ever. And then... He thought, cows aren't carnivores. This whole thing is, is, is beyond his ability to, to comprehend. And, and before any revelation comes, before any eye-opening event occurs so he can understand this, he wakes up. Now, most of the time, we are usually glad when we awaken from a dream, right? But every once in a while, we have a nice dream, and we think, huh, that wasn't a, let's go back. I'll do that some more. Sometimes you can do that. I don't know if you've ever been able to do that, but I have. I've been able to go back to sleep and dream the same dream. I don't know why, but anyway, it happens sometimes. But generally, you know, we're glad to, to break away from the dream and, and let it go. And uh, I think that was partially Pharaoh's feeling here, except for it was, there was something about it that just gripped him and he needed to know what it meant. 
But, you know, it's interesting the way the scripture says. It says in the end of verse 4, Then Pharaoh woke, verse 5, and he fell asleep. So he wakes up from this dream. Well, what's it all mean? And then, you know, goes back to sleep. That's usually a little bit unusual. Usually if you awaken from a dream that, that really shatters your, your composure, it's pretty hard sometimes to go back to sleep again, especially if you're Pharaoh and you believe all this stuff to, to have meaning. And so he falls back to sleep again. Certainly God put him back to sleep. And then he dreamed a second dream, which is very similar to the first. The parallelism of the dream should have been clear. Seven bad destroy seven good. In both dreams, you have seven bad destroying seven good. And, and that should have come out clear. But as we proceed further here, we discover even that seemed to be hidden to not only Pharaoh, but to his wise men. In the second dream, the Pharaoh sees a single stalk of grain grow up. And this single stalk of grain then fruits into seven heads or ears. Now sometimes if you're reading the King James and it talks about ears, we think of corn. But we're not talking about corn. First of all, there was no such thing as corn as we know corn in ancient Egypt because that's a, a new world a crop. What we're talking about here is probably wheat or barley. And so it's, it's fruiting into these seven heads. Again, it's described, the heads are described as, as plump and desirable. Any farmer would have considered himself a very, very successful farmer and blessed by the gods to have a field full of seven-headed grain. Because normally in Egypt in that time, grain didn't sprout into seven heads. It was more commonly, you might get one or two heads, maybe three on a single stock, but seven heads? No, that was not their experience. That was a symbol of great abundance for that to be portrayed. Now, the word for grain here uh, literally means ear, and the implication is of, of grain here. Now, if you study ancient Mediterranean history, and, and we know this from further on in our study of Genesis to be true, but ancient Egypt was from, from earliest times a kind of a granary uh, of, of much of the Mediterranean world. In fact, later on, when, when, when Anthony, you remember Anthony and Cleopatra and uh, Octavian from over in Rome, when they clashed, it wasn't simply because Octavian didn't want a rivalry of a second kingdom established over here, but was because Egypt was so important as a granary for the Mediterranean world that uh, he couldn't afford to have Egypt separated from the rest of what was Rome. And so ancient Egypt was very often able to export grain, barley and wheat, to other parts of the Mediterranean world. The reason for this is, of course, if you've ever been to Egypt, the skies there are cloudless most of the time. I think I may have mentioned this before, but one of the things that, that really sticks in my mind uh, about Egypt, and, and Len, you probably remember this too. You, you, you were there too, right? Was that the trees, now you go around here and you look at a tree and you don't think anything particularly unusual about it, but the tree leaves on all the trees are dirty. All the time the tree leaves are dirty, and it looks like somebody needs to go out and hose off the trees. And the reason is it just basically doesn't rain. 
but it's very dusty. And the dust collects up on the tree leaves and just sits there. You know? And dust storms come along. They're very common. We, we ran into one. I mean, we saw one from the airplane, as I recall, as we flew over part of Egypt. But uh, Egypt is, is in an area where the, the skies tend to be cloudless, where it rarely ever rains. But the abundance is provided, of course, because it does rain down south. And that rain then flows through the river into this dry area. And the flooding occurs along the Nile, did, occurred along the Nile like clockwork. They could count on the flooding of the Nile. And the Nile would flood out over its banks and it would, of course, be rich in, in soil that it was carrying down from the mountains of Ethiopia or, well, most of the sediment was lost in Asud, which is a big swamp there in, uh, in southern Sudan from the White Nile. But the Blue Nile brought all kinds of sediment down and, and dumped it into the Nile. And, and then this was spread as the river flooded. It, it brought rejuvenation to the soil. They didn't have to go out there and constantly put fertilizer in the soil because the soil was rejuvenated every year from the sediment being carried down and, and the flooding. And so they were able to get uh, one excellent crop and sometimes even two crops out of the same piece of land in a year. So Egypt was a land of abundance under normal circumstances. By the way, you probably well know that uh, the Nile River no longer floods in, in Egypt, and that's because they have built, uh, of course, the main one is the Aswan High Dam, which holds back Lake Nasser and, of course, doesn't allow But they had built dams prior to that one, which had uh, prevented further uh, flooding. So what we have here, again, is a very peaceful, pleasant scene. Aha! This, in this beautiful cloudless sky from the black earth is rising this seven-headed stalk. Symbol of great abundance. Symbol of the gods of Egypt and, and their uh, blessing upon the people of Egypt. But as in the first dream, the mood changed and became more sinister. As Pharaoh witnessed the sprouting of seven more ears of grain. The fact that it is not stated that these seven came up on a single stock probably implies that seven, seven separate stocks came up with one ear of grain on each stock, which would be a symbol of a very poor crop. And then on top of that, we're told that these ears were small, that they were shriveled, that they had been desiccated by the east wind, which blows out of the Arabian Peninsula across the Red Sea and across the, uh, what's the, the, uh, the eastern part of Egypt is called the Arabian Desert. And, and in across there, and it's extremely dry wind, and so it, it further desiccates these uh, ears of grain. Now, as in the case of the seven emaciated cows, the seven shriveled ears, the scripture says, engulfed or swallowed the seven plump ears. Now, just as in the case of seven skinny cows eating seven fat cows, this was totally foreign to human experience. Nobody has ever seen an ear of grain eat another ear of grain, right? If you have, <laughs> talk to me. I'd like to hear about it. <laughs> what this does, of course, is bring a very nightmarish quality to the dream, just as in the first case. And so what was a pleasant, peaceful, God-blessed experience becomes a hellish nightmare 
as Pharaoh awakens from this terrible foreign image that he saw. Pharaoh is shocked awake, I believe. He believes the dreams are important. Partly because of the intensity of the dream, he could remember every little detail of the dream as if it were living before him at the moment, and also because in that day, in that world, dreams were very important. It, they were believed to be very, very important. But he couldn't grasp the message. He saw the dream, the two dreams, vividly as can be, but he couldn't understand what they meant. This was very, very frustrating to him. Pharaoh knew not God. Oh, he knew gods, but not God. Since he didn't know God, God could not directly commune with him. Or I should maybe say God would not directly commune with him. God can do anything. But God would not directly commune with him because he didn't know God. Instead, God sent a dream that could only be interpreted by someone who did know God. Someone who was in communion with God could explain to this heathen what the dream meant. This is normally how God carries out his plan, not necessarily through dreams. But God brings those who don't know him to a knowledge of him through those who do know him, generally speaking. Now, God is able to just you know, supernaturally bring truth to someone uh, without another human being being involved. But that's not normally the way God works. And so God is bringing truth to Pharaoh through Joseph. This pagan king will be made aware of what God is saying through God's faithful servant, Joseph. It doesn't take a lot of stretching or imagination to understand that our job is basically the same. Your job, my job, is to manifest God to this sin-benighted society in which we live. I'd like to read from Matthew 5, well-known verses for early in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The passage there, as Jesus is speaking, implies that we as believers are lights. But it also implies that we as believers can hide that light. And you'll notice that it says there in the uh, end of verse 16, that let your, well, the whole verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they what? that they can hear your words of testimony? No. That they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean you don't speak words of testimony, but it means your words of testimony have no meaning unless the good works are there to back them up. As Christians, we're accused often enough of being hypocrites. 
There's no use making it real by proclaiming Christ and living like the world. Because when we do so, we hide our light. It's possible to be a truly born-again Christian and yet to be living in such a way that others looking at our lives wouldn't be able to tell that. Especially in our society today when there are so many uh, cranks running around with so many weird ideas about what it means to be religious or what it means to know God. We are here to interpret God's word to the world. And we interpret God's word to the world not just by getting up and saying something to them, that's a way, but we primarily interpret God's word to the world by living, by living in obedience to it, by doing what it says. It's by our love, the scripture tells us, that they know that we are the children of God. If we don't live in obedience to the word of God, we are denying the truth to those who are around us who will therefore not have the warning and the hope that comes from hearing the word and seeing its reality by the way in which we live. I'd like to uh, turn, I don't have this on the outline, and this passage is a little bit indirect, but in 2 Corinthians 4, I think we can derive from this passage what I'm trying to say here as well as what the passage is directly saying. 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He's talking about living faithfully the word here. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, now the passage is directly saying here, I think, that there are those whose minds are blinded and, and they don't see the gospel. It's, to them, it's veiled. But I think we can also say that it's possible for us to veil the gospel, to hide it, so that others won't see it. And they will never have their eyes open to the truth because they don't see it in us. They don't see us live it. And the church today is experiencing a rampant Hypocrisy, if you will, I believe. Uh, this, this is showing up in more and more of the writings of some of the, uh, the great Christian writers of today. They're pointing out how the church is, is saying that it's walking uh, with Christ and, and we're talking about Christ, but if you look at the lives of the people of the church from Monday through Saturday, you don't see it. Because we're, we're taken over by the... Um, by the philosophy of the world of today. We think that because it's okay in our society to do certain things, that it's okay for Christians to do that. And of course, society keeps telling us, yeah, that's okay, you know, it's, it's, it's really okay. But, but the reason it's okay is because this, our society has broken almost completely free from the influence of its Christian roots. I'm never one to get up and say that America has always been a Christian nation. It has not. 
But the impact of, of, of the Bible on our society has been very profound. And, and even people who weren't regular churchgoers knew a lot about the Bible often. I mean, you know, what was it? It was earlier this century that people still learned in school from things like the McGuffey Readers. And the McGuffey Readers were just premised in all the concepts and teachings of the Word. And you couldn't miss teachings of the Word by reading these uh, readers and the kinds of things that were written in there. But today we're, we're, we're completely free of this. We want to live in a, well, our, our, many of our educational leaders want to be sure that we, we don't impose any values on anyone. Let each person develop his or own, her own values. Well, if you know the scripture, that's bunk. Because if you let everybody de develop his or own, her own values, they're basically going to be valueless or they're going to go the way of the world because that's the natural tendency of man. The natural tendency of man is not to do right, but to do wrong. And, and it's important that we teach people what is right, that we give them boundaries. You know, that's why the scripture says, uh, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart. Now, many things have been said about that passage, but the parents are supposed to train their child. They're not supposed to just say, okay, kid, well, we'll just look for all your, uh, you know, your little traits and all the things, but we'll just let you be free there to do, develop in any old way you want to develop. It's really funny in our society <clears throat> how this is done because you try to tell that to somebody who's going to become a, an Olympic swimmer or an Olympic runner. Well, just do what feels good. You, know, you don't need any discipline in your life. <laughs> well, if you don't have any discipline, you'll never be an Olympic anything. You, know, you, you have to, you know, as Paul says, beat your body and bring it into submission. Only he's talking about for spiritual gain. And, and, and yet we, we lose all that. We, we, we set it aside in our society. And, and it's really unfortunate when Christians buy into that. Because we must be a disciplined people if we're going to walk the way God wants us to walk. It isn't going to just happen, right? I think we understand that. Well, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled because he felt he was receiving a warning, but he didn't understand the warning. Have you ever had something like that happen? You feel like you're being warned about something, but you have no idea what it is. Literally, the passage reads that his soul was thrust out of balance by an outside force. And this had caused him to become very wrought up. And so he did what he always did when an extraordinary circumstance developed. And he needed extraordinary advice, advice from the spiritual realm. He called upon the magicians and the wise men. Come on in, you guys, and, and uh, help me to understand this, this dream that I have dreamed. You notice it says all the wise men, men and all uh, the magicians. Now, obviously within, within that given area, certainly. A being a believer in the supernatural realm, and Pharaoh believed in the supernatural, he believed in the gods. And he believed in the transit of the soul, for example, and, and, and the whole story of what happened when you die and the weighing of your heart and the balance and, uh, you know, the, the God that stands there ready to gobble you up if you don't weigh properly uh, in the, uh, I mean, it's, a lot of it's pretty gory when you think about it, but he, he believed all this. And so he decided to seek knowledge from the supernatural realm, but that knowledge was inaccessible 
because it was inaccessible to the evil spirits that were consorted by the magicians and the wise men. In, second, in 1 Corinthians 2, we read this, the thoughts of God knows, no one knows except the Spirit of God. They could not probe. The spirits of the evil forces of this world, Satan himself could not interpret this dream. You know, sometimes we give credit, too much credit to Satan. We almost consider him to be somebody up here co-equal with God. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. Satan is so inferior to God, he's not even on the same scale. He could not even understand the meaning of this dream because God didn't allow him to. And so the magicians couldn't understand it either because the evil spirits couldn't tell them. What's really exciting is, though, as believers in Jesus Christ, as students of the Word of God, we have access to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. We can know what the evil spirits cannot know. Oh, they may have be able to read it, you know, uh, from the Scripture to themselves, but they don't know it like we know it because they don't have the Spirit of God within them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak wi God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. It's exciting. You and I have had our minds open to truth, to the truth of God to the truth of Jesus. And we, therefore, have knowledge that the evil spirits do not even have. But how do we have that knowledge? How does the Spirit of God make known to us the mind of God? Do we just become a Christian and all of a sudden our computer banks are filled up with all this knowledge? I think we all can testify that that's not so. He does it through the Word of God and through prayer. 
Thus, if you or I at some moment feel clueless about something, it could be because we have not committed ourselves to adequate Bible study and prayer. How do we get from generic knowledge to specific knowledge relative to the affairs of God in our lives? Well, James tells us, and, and, and this, of course, is a passage many of us often quote in uh, James chapter 1, but it's a good passage to put in your memory banks if it's not there already. James 1.5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If we don't have wisdom about a certain thing, we are to go to God for it. And we ask him, and he promises to give it if we are truly trusting in him and believing him. But if we're asking wisdom but not wanting to live the way he wants us to live, then we are double-minded. And a double-minded man is unstable or a double-minded person. And God is not going to give his jewels of wisdom to such a person. So we need to come in faith and, and, and with lives living in, lived in accordance with his word. If we ask for specific guidance, how does God give it to us? I've heard people say, well, God told me. And, and you know, the Im implication is that either God spoke audibly or at least they've heard his words inside their head. And I, uh, you know, I can't deny that God does that. But God usually speaks to us through his word, through this book. This is how he normally speaks to us. <coughs> Sometimes he shows us what to do through circumstances. They play a role, although we can't depend too much on circumstances because they can leave a, lead us awry. Sometimes he, he gives us guidance through the God-inspired advice of another Christian person. These methods he uses to show us the way. And we have to be wise that we appraise each... Well, certainly the Word of God is clear, usually... Uh, circumstances and other people's advice have to be weighed, <laughs> particularly in, in light of the Word of God, because they can be wrong. Human wisdom alone is not sufficient. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Think of all the wise counselors out there in this world who are trying to counsel people. Where's the best place to put your money? How's the best way to get your life straightened out? And they don't give God the time of day. What does God say about that? Their wisdom is foolishness. Which means to us as Christians, we need to be careful who we seek advice from. You don't want to get advice from a fool. Pharaoh quickly found that human wisdom could not penetrate the enigma of this dream. And of course, when he called in for the wise men and the soothsayers and so forth, he was hoping to get more than human wisdom. He was hoping, of course, to get wisdom from the supernatural realm. Because when he called in for the magicians and the wise men, he was calling for the Egyptian priesthood, in effect. In fact, I think on, on your outline there, 
it mentions, uh, I've mentioned the fact that the, the terms are khartom for the first group, and, and this literally means writer or engraver, the person who goes out and, and, and writes the hieroglyphics, the sacred writing of the ancient Egyptians, the person who drew up the horoscopes. These were, of course, astrologers and mediums who had contact with the demonic realm. They were those, to put it in modern context, who channeled knowledge from the ascended masters. Huh. You hear about that a lot now, don't you? All kinds of people out there who are ch channeling knowledge from some 38,000-year-old being out there in space, you know. You know what kind of knowledge that is. It's the kind of knowledge these guys were after. These guys were able to perform sleight of hand. They were also able to contact de demonic power. And, and you see how that works. This is much later, of course, uh, when Moses is in Egypt. But in Exodus 7, we say the, see these same characters, not the same individuals, but people representing the same uh, positions, how, how they function. In Exodus 7, verse 8, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the, Egypt, the magicians of Egypt, did the same thing with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Pharaoh's, uh, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You see, through demonic power, through sleight of hand, these Egyptian magicians were able to do the same thing Aaron did. But just in case they didn't get the picture, Aaron's serpent. Now, how does this happen? How many magicians were there? Well, later on, in, in, I forget if it's Paul or whoever it was, talks about Janus and Jambres, and uh, so it seems like there were at least two anyway uh, from tradition. But, but that one should swallow the other two is a little bit of an unusual <laughs> event also, and that should have said something. But, but here was demonic power able to at least re uh, imitate the power of God. And the second group were known as Kacham, uh, which means the wise, and these were the noted sages of the land, you know, the, the, the men of great age, uh, you know, gray hair and long beards, the guys who had been around a long time, and they really understood things, and they were Pharaoh's chief advisors. It's interesting how um, Isaiah takes a poke at this. Many of the prophets had a good time as uh, they knew the mind of the Lord and they spoke about some of these others. But in Isaiah 19 and verse 11, we read this, the princes of Zon, now that was one of the major uh, cities in, uh, in upper Egypt, uh, lower Egypt uh, later on, the princes of Zon are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you... Men say to Pharaoh, I am the son of, a, of the wise, a son of ancient kings. Well then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you. 
let them understand what the, what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. You guys are so bright, then why don't you predict what's going to happen to Egypt? They were wise, but they were wise in the wisdom of this world. They were wise in the knowledge of demons. But, but that does not match against the wisdom of God in any way, shape, or form. Scores of magicians and wise men had not a clue. I mean, is the dream particularly complex? No. All the brilliance of men and all the brilliance of demons could not penetrate this dream or these dreams. Even though the dreams were simple and the meaning is simple. But their minds were sin-darkened. And a sin-darkened mind cannot comprehend even the simplest truth of God. Let me... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, illustrates this. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? I mean, we're talking about directly like, you know, these guys here. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews asked for a sign, Greeks searched for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. By far, the Jews want a sign, the Greeks want wisdom, but you just preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolish. And we live in a world that laughs at us. Silly thought. All you have to do is go out on the beach. Don't you know we're God? We just channel the powers, the, the convergence of the forces or whatever, you know. Go up here on top of Mount Shasta and get zapped, you know. <laughs> right. Well, we'll find what the interpretation of the dream turned out to be and how this will transform the life of Joseph. Joseph.